Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre, being joined by Ryan, and today we have the latest installment of our miniseries, Sri Lanka Debt, Development, and Democracy. We have an episode with prominent Sri Lankan economist, Subhashini Abesinghe. So Subhashini really gives us a lay of the land in this episode. Actually, wait, Ryan, before I talk about Subhashini's episode, we wanted to talk a bit about, actually, uh, the passing of General Colin Powell, our former Secretary of State. Yeah, Andre, I mean, truly just uh, it's with great sadness that we're we have to tell all of our listeners, if you don't already know that uh, uh, Colin Powell did pass away at 84 years old uh, from complications from COVID-19, uh, really just uh, quite an incredible man, a uh, truly a trailblazer who not only was a, a general, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he was also National Security Advisor uh, and Secretary of State. And uh, again, you know, he kind of forged the path for African-Americans serving in these very high level national security positions. Um, really, I mean, Andre, I mean, I, I, when you think of kind of like the, the greatest individuals in, in U.S. national security history, U.S. foreign policy history, Colin Powell is definitely in my top five. I mean, truly, especially in, in the last maybe 30 or 40 years, I, I can't think of anyone else that really kind of outpaces him when you're looking at just some truly great uh, statesmen and generals of our time. I mean, really, Colin Powell is, I mean, the epitome of what it means to be a public servant. He was twice awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. President Bush said that he was a favorite of the president's. He was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Bush Sr. in 91, and then the Medal of Freedom by President Clinton in 1993, and the Medal of Freedom with Distinction. Uh, a very interesting legacy, of course. Uh, he did give that speech to the United Nations uh, that really motivated a lot of the American public to push for the war in Iraq. But later on, he said himself that it was a blot on his record. He addressed that as a blot on his record. Uh, but I mean, I remember my Nana, she used to work for the president of Sri Lanka uh, around 2004 after the tsunami happened. And when the tsunami had happened, uh, General Powell went as Secretary of State, sort of in his last weeks, uh, visited Sri Lanka, and he, my nana, just remembers him as this, as this gentleman type figure. Like you know, meeting Colin Powell is still something she talks about. When I saw her in August, she still talks about like you know, I met Colin Powell, what a great guy. But uh, I mean, really a remarkable public servant, and uh, yeah, I mean, just a terrible loss. Right. I mean, nothing says like that the memory of him and he is such an upstanding guy that you have people on both sides of the aisle in such divided times remembering colin powell and his impact uh, on the u.s and the world I, i'm really just I, again I, I do want to emphasize this uh, and president obama and also condoleezza rice said this as well that what he did uh, for the african-american community in providing a, a figure had that you know young black boys and girls can look to as, as a role model uh, really is important as well. Yeah, and certainly a very interesting legacy, a legacy that will be assessed for many generations ahead. So, yeah. Anyway, so we have this great episode today, the latest episode in this miniseries on Sri Lanka with a prominent economist, Subhashini Abhisinghe. We really talked to Subhashini today to sort of get a lay of the land in terms of what does Sri Lanka's economy actually look like. The reason we wanted to interview her was because we've heard from a couple of politicians. We've heard from the former UNP Prime Minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe, who has one, who's on one aisle, side of the aisle. We had a former Tamil National Alliance politician, not a former, current Tamil National Alliance uh, member of parliament, uh, Shanakian Rasamanikam, who talked about his perspectives from the minority viewpoint. Then we had the ruling party uh, member, uh, basically the de facto deputy foreign minister, Tharika Balasuri, who voiced the government's perspective on so many of these economic investments that have to do with China, Sri Lanka's ties with the U.S., and so on. So Subhashini's episode is really an episode that's going to try and get an objective assessment of the situation in Sri Lanka's economy right now what is actually occurring with Sri Lanka's uh, Chinese economic ties, and perhaps what Sri Lanka's ties with the United States looks like in terms of investments and economic aid and so forth. So folks, uh, this is a great episode, a very interesting episode. Uh, here it is. 
So, Subhashini, uh, what exactly is the state of Sri Lanka's economy today? How would you characterize it? So, Sri Lankan economy, like almost all other economies, are facing the uh, effects of the pandemic that has lasted now uh, more than a year. But maybe what makes Sri Lanka a bit different from some other countries, other developing countries, is Sri Lankan economy was already quite weak. Uh, but at the time, uh, the pandemic uh, hit the country. So Sri Lankan economy had uh, basically experience, was experiencing slowing down of growth. And for a long time, Sri Lankan economy had issues with its public finance. That was one of the main areas uh, of uh, concern was that Sri Lanka did not have already have fiscal space required to do the necessary investments in the country. Or, uh, country we had very one of the lowest tax to GDP ratios uh, among uh, in the countries in the world. And uh, we had also, we were struggling to increase our foreign exchange earnings. Our exports, for example, even exports to GDP ratio has been declining since 2000 uh, from over 20% to around 12, 13%. And um, despite the end of the conflict, we could not increase foreign direct investments. And our worker remittances have been increasing, but recently that growth has also slowed down. So Sri Lanka was in this situation where whether it's foreign exchange earnings or whether it's tax revenue, uh, the earning, the Sri Lanka was struggling to actually increase either side of the revenue. And the and when you already have very low fiscal margins and when you're already having very low foreign exchange reserves, you have this COVID-19, you had to now face the, um, the COVID-19 and a health crisis with it. So what the what that actually did is it definitely crippled Sri Lankan economy, maybe a lot more than other economies who may have had space to withstand the shock to a certain extent. Uh, so so today we are. That's why today Sri Lankan economies obviously is uh, um, has a very um, neg- experienced negative growth uh, in the in 2020, and now it's recovering slowly, but uh, but our tax revenue has even further declined because of the lockdowns and the slowing down of economic activity. And even the meager foreign exchange earnings we had is also slowing down, especially tourism has taken one of the biggest uh, uh, hits uh, because of the COVID. And so so what you see is that Sri Lankan, Sri Lankan economy is struggling to, uh, to really manage uh, the situation. So before COVID, I guess, why was Sri Lanka's economy struggling? Can we attribute it to any like one or two or three reasons? Was it due to, say, the Easter Sunday terror attacks, the constitutional crisis? Why was Sri Lanka's economy struggling just in general? I would just simply say it was because of mismanagement than anything else. And it was not a problem created with one shock. Of course, every shock leaves the country further uh, further weakens the country and its ability to recover. But even before Easter Sunday attacks was definitely uh, a shock, it, it, it really affected, again, mostly the tourism industry because the tourism industry so uh, declined for the first time after the end of war because it was a booming sector of about 17% uh, decline, for example, in tourist arrivals. But what was, um, so Sri Lankan economy always had uh, inherent structural problems that every successive government continued to ignore to address. For example, Sri Lanka's uh, tax to uh, tax revenue being uh, insufficient and tax to GDP ratios has declined. It has been happening for several, uh, over a decade. So it was just that no government really wanted to address it because some of these um, uh, to some of these structural adjustments uh, are not very popular with the politi- uh, with the public. So, for example, if you are talking about increasing tax revenue. Uh, that is obviously not a very popular policy decision and any successive government would try to avoid. Uh, but And also when one government tries to increase taxes, then at the next election cycle, the other government promises to reduce them. So, so the so policy inconsistency and mismanagement to me are the are the main reasons why Sri Lanka and and mismanagement uh, over a long period of time 
uh, is is what the main Sri Lankan economy uh, week over the years. So you mentioned tourism as being sort of a big a boon to Sri Lanka's economy. Uh, what else do we really need to know about the economy in terms of sort of just the general structuring, perhaps key exports, the nature of imports, and so on, to just understand the current economic uh, situation, for example, like what are the key sectors in Sri Lanka's economy? How diversified is it? And so on. Sri Lankan economy is not diversified, and that is one of the biggest problems. Uh, if I give you a very um, a very simple description of Sri Lankan economy, so you have three sectors, agriculture, industry, and services. In Sri Lanka, agriculture counts only for 7% of GDP. One would look at this number and think, well, agriculture is not an important uh, sector in the Sri Lankan economy. But actually, it is quite important because uh, although that sector counts only for 7% of the gross domestic product, uh, it provides employment to 20, uh, 25% of the of the populate, employed population, right? So basically, it contributes 25% to employment. So that because of that, that is a very important sector politically as well as economically. For the politicians, it's an important sector because it's a huge vote bank. Economically, it's an important sector because you have uh, this large number of people stuck in a se- sector that contributes very less than 10% to the GDP. Uh, so, and because it's politically important, it tends to be highly politicized as well, the agriculture sector. Then you have the industry sector uh, that accounts for about 25% of the GDP and 28% of the employment. And the services sector is the largest sector, accounting for 59% and 47% of the employment. If you ask agriculture, what are the main sectors? Obviously, paddy, which is the staple food of Sri Lanka, is the biggest uh, uh, contributed to agriculture. Then you have the tea, rubber, coconut, and spices. And then industry, the largest two industries in Sri Lanka is apparel and rubber product manufacturing. And services, you have the telecommunications, the financial and logistics, and all these set construction, all of these sectors uh, kind of falling there. So, uh, so in terms of, um, uh, if you look at the external sector, um, Sri Lanka's exports, of course, a uh, lot of people say that lack of diversification is Sri Lanka's uh, main problem. But of course, I personally feel it is uh, lack of alignment with global trends. But still, you would see Sri Lanka's exports um, sector is heavily dominated by apparel, around 40, 40 good 45%. Of the exports, uh, the export income is dependent on apparel. And then if you take apparel, tea and spice, apparel, rubber products, tea and spices, all of that accounts for a good 70% uh, or more of the total exports of the country. Uh, if you are talking about services exports, the, the three most important sectors, I would say, are tourism, information and communication technology, and logistics, maritime logistics. So, I mean... You said like uh, Sri Lanka is not necessarily on par with uh, the global trends right now. Uh, in, in what way are they not on par? Like how are they behind, I guess, sort of in general terms? So to me, I'm, I was specifically referring to export sector. So the, when you're diagnosing okay. the problem of the export sector, I frequently try to compare Sri Lanka with East Asian countries or the Southeast Asian countries that have seen Quite, has been quite successful in growing their exports. So one of the two of the two key differences that I see in Sri Lanka's export structure and and the East Asian and Southeast Asian countries is that they've been able to exploit or make use of the big two biggest changes that happened in the global economy maybe in the last fifty years. Uh, Sri Lanka has totally uh, you know missed that opportunity. To me, the two biggest changes is China's rise as a major trading partner for the Asian uh, region. Uh, China has, for example, become the largest, um, I mean, its share of imports in the world has increased from something like uh, 3% at the beginning of the 21st century to around uh, 11 12% today. And it is the second largest importer in the world today after USA, which means that you have this massive market uh, in the region. And you could see, you can see that most of the East Asian and Southeast Asian countries um, export more than 10% of their exports go to China. And China is one of their major uh, trading partners in contrast uh, in Sri Lanka uh, only about 2% of our exports go to uh, go to Chinese market 
So, uh, so I feel that's a big miss, missing opportunity. Secondly, is what you would have heard a lot about the change in the production uh, structure of uh, like large manufacturing. This is called the global value chains. And most of these uh, global value chains actually have three main regional value chains, the American, North American value chain, the European value chain, and the Asian value chain. And the Asian value chain today, uh, you know, used to be centered around Japan some time back, but today it's quite a lot centered around China. And this value chain is basically about, um, is dominated by things like automotive industry and electronic industry there. Your basically production um, chain has been sliced into different parts and components, and you are uh, trading in in parts and components, not final products. But uh, that is called the intermediate products trade, which accounts for a good half, 50% of the global trade today. But uh, and and you can see most of these Asian and Southeast Asian countries are very much part of these large production networks of these big multinational firms. But sadly, Sri Lanka is nowhere in that uh, value chain. Sri Lanka has missed that opportunity. To me, uh, why East Asian countries succeeded in increasing their exports is because they managed to really, uh, you know, make use of these opportunities. But Sri Lanka. Uh, obviously failed to do so. So you mentioned China, and I do want to talk a lot about China over the course of this interview. But before that, mm-hmm. uh, I just want to understand how do the two political spheres uh, compare with regards to economic policy? I say political spheres because there are two new political parties who are dominant now, at least within the last five years. And uh, just like you know, in the US, Republicans, less regulation, less spending, in theory. Democrats, more regulation, more spending. Uh, can we sort of say something similar comparably for the two parties that dominate Sri Lankan politics right now? So when, when you say, yeah, I think Sri Lankan political context, I must admit that I'm not the best political analyst, being an economist, so I will give you my layman's view. Uh, but uh, so in Sri, Sri Lanka has undergone significant shift in its uh, political party structure. So from independence, of course, Sri Lanka always had a multi-party system, not like the US where there are only two parties, right? Sri Lanka has like uh, five, ten parties, um, especially you have a lot of parties that represent certain communities, Tamil Muslim communities or the state Tamil communities. Uh, so, so you have uh, a lot multiple parties, but you had two political parties, the United National Party and the Sri Lanka Freedom Party that, of course, dominated the dominated and um, changed hands in actually uh, ruling the country uh, with each uh, election cycle. At times, they had to obviously form coalitions with the smaller parties, but these two parties were really uh, the main parties in the Sri Lankan polit- um, uh, political system, within the Sri Lankan political system. And uh, they had quite different approaches to the uh, way their ideology about economic development. One was uh, the United National Party was uh, more uh, center-right in terms of its economic uh, uh, policy. They were more market-oriented and more global-oriented, whereas the Sri Lanka Freedom Party was more center-left, where they were more domestic-oriented and less global-oriented. So, uh, but what we see in, in the last 10 years is that actually both these parties have become insignificant. And in their place, two new parties have emerged. Uh, so what uh, the current ruling party is, uh, SLPP, Sri Lanka Pobhijana Peramuna, is, is um, of course a party uh, that was uh, built around uh, Mahindra Rajapaksha, Basil Rajapaksha and the Rajapaksha family led by them. And then you have uh, the Samavijana Bharadegya, the main opposition party in the parliament today, which is sort of, one could say, first one is a breakaway from the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, but today it is far bigger than the Sri Lanka Freedom Party. Uh, And Sri Lanka Freedom Party is one of their coalition partners. And in the 
in the in the samugya chana balavega is almost a break away from the united national party united national party which was one of the most major parties in the country could not even be in a single seat uh, in the last election and samugya chana balavega is has become the alternative opposition party it is led by uh, um, uh, sajit premadasa Uh, who was the son of a former president of this country. So another question that I have in sort of understanding Sri Lanka's economy is what are the regional economic ties that Sri Lanka has with other South Asian countries? For example, India. We often understood South Asia as one of the least integrated regions in the world. So what do those regional economic ties look like? So when you look at the South Asian region I think uh, it is considered as a region that is least integrated uh, compared to the other regions in the world. Uh it's uh, uh, that is largely because uh, there is very little Uh, transfer uh, good transport connectivity between these uh, these countries so as a result uh, india obviously becomes the most important economic partner for all south asian countries and it is no different to sri lanka so india is an important trading partner it accounts for Uh, it, it's it's the it's accounts for about 20% of sri lanka's imports and about 6% of sri lanka's exports and then uh, india is also a important uh, source of finance for sri lanka india has uh, been in recent years exim bank of india has been a lender uh, to develop infrastructure in sri lanka especially the railway sector and india is also an important source of foreign direct investment in sri lanka and india is the largest source of uh, tourists into sri lanka it accounts for about 17-18% of total tourist arrivals in the country and uh, and obviously uh, so that's in terms of uh, the economy we have a in, we have a bilateral trade agreement with india in the sri lanka free trade agreement despite the importance of india uh, into the sri lankan economy and i should not forget that india is a major customer of colombo port right a lot of colombo port is a big transshipment port and that a uh, lot of transshipment cargo is come into colombo port comes from india so india is definitely very important for sri lanka economically but uh, but uh, the the political relationship between india and sri lanka is uh, uh, very uh, quite affected by the domestic politics and in sri lanka i guess not just sri lanka most of asian neighbors there is a lot of um, mistrust between um, in about india and there is a view that india necessarily intervenes in domestic affairs of these countries and that india is not a fair player uh, so or uh, there is lot of uh, mistrust and any engagement with indian government there is lot of opposition uh, from uh, uh, various people inside the country uh, other than india in terms of uh, trade uh, i mean tr- economic engagements with other countries remain quite low sri lanka is a member of the south asian treaty area actually there is hardly any trade that uh, takes place under the south asian free trade agree- agreement it's not a very uh, liberal agreement in that sense and then um, other trading partners are pakistan bangladesh and maldives maldives is relatively important for sri lanka but uh, i think sri lanka's economic engagement with other south asian countries like afghanistan nepal bhutan remains very low So now I want to shift the conversation into the topic of China's relations with Sri Lanka. So when exactly did we actually start to see this bigger emphasis on Chinese investment in Sri Lanka? It feels like to me like I've been seeing more and more articles about it in the last 5 years, but has this primarily been something that's been happening in the post-war era? Did China sort of invest in Sri Lanka during the war to great extent or what did it look like? So I think it's Uh, important to make a distinction between chinese investments and investments made by sri lankan governments by take uh, with the loans taken from 
Chinese government or Chinese lending institutions. So frequently people seem to, um, you know, can, seem to think that when Exim China gives a loan for Sri Lanka uh, to build a highway, that some people seem to think that's a Chinese investment. Actually, that is not. That is an investment by Sri Lankan government because at the end of the day, Sri Lankan government and the people of this country will pay back the loan to uh, China. So Chinese investments to me are where Chinese state-owned enterprises or Chinese companies actually bring their own money and invest in Sri Lanka. Those would fall as Chinese investments. So both of these have been important to Sri Lanka. I will give you two examples of um, Chinese investments that we normally call them as foreign direct investments, uh, two of the investments that has, the large investments that has also received quite a lot of attention is, uh, one is Colombo International Container Terminal, CICT, uh, which is uh, an investment by China Merchant Port Holdings Company. And then the second that everybody talks about is the Colombo Port City, which is an investment by China Harbor Engineering Company. So these are investments where the Chinese state-owned enterprises actually brought money and invested. Sri Lankan government did not borrow money. Whereas if you take the Kalam Katinaika Highway or not actually coal power plant or Southern Railway Extension, these are all uh, infrastructure that has been developed by Sri Lankan government or invested by Sri Lankan government, but they have taken loans from uh, the Chinese lending institutions, mainly Exim Bank of China, to develop these, uh, these infrastructure. And like you rightly said, uh, this there has definitely been a boom in infrastructure investment post-war. And, uh, and this infrastructure investments have been largely funded uh, by uh, um, loans taken from uh, multilateral and bilateral uh, sources. So for example, at Verity Research, we did this study, looked at um, the infrastructure funding that Sri Lanka has uh, received from various lending institutions between 2005-2019 period. And we, we, we realized that Sri Lankan government has borrowed about 27.5 billion US dollars during this period to fund infrastructure. And, and uh, this was really at the end, at the end of the war, Sri Lankan government uh, at that time felt like uh, during the 30-year war period, there has been quite uh, very little investment done in infrastructure. And that is a very good, uh, fair assessment. I will give you two examples. If you looked at the Colombo port, uh, at the time when war was ending, Colombo port was already uh, facing congestion, they they were uh, they were operating be beyond their capacity. They could not accommodate most of the uh, ships simply because we have not invested in these deep water terminals, and most of the large vessels couldn't come into Colombo port. So there was really a very uh, it was the investment in expanding Colombo port was uh, necessary, and developing deep water container terminals was necessary. It's the same for if you look at the Bandarnaik International Airport. After the post war, I said there was a boom in tourism. Uh, airport has was had was running out of capacity. They could not accommodate and cater to the increasing number of airlines and uh, the passengers. So, so definitely there were areas which required uh, quite a lot of investment. And at the end of the war, there was quite a lot of uh, reconstruction uh, in war affected regions, especially in the north and east. A very good example is is the northern railway connecting Colombo to Jaffna, which was destroyed during the war. And that was quite a significant investment that was required. So there was reconstruction of the, of the regions that was affected by war. But overall, there was this idea that Sri Lanka had a lot of catching up to do. And you can clearly see this uh, because uh, if you look at this $27.5 billion that Sri Lanka has borrowed, this was, a, this was provided by actually 83% 80, 80, of these loans were given by uh, five lenders. Um, who are these five lenders? China is the biggest lender, accounting uh, for about uh, 30 uh, odd percentage of this. And then you had the Asian Development Bank and Japan, especially JICA, accounting uh, for about 17, 18% each. And then uh, they're followed by World Bank and, uh, and um, India, 
accounting for six to seven, six or seven percent each. Uh, so, so these five lenders accounted for eighty percent of the total infrastructure lending. And like you said before the war, if you look at the two thousand five during the war, two thousand five two thousand nine period, their total borrowing was around six billion. But immediately after that, uh, 2010-2014, you could see that Sri Lankan government has borrowed twelve billion US dollars. They almost doubled the amount they borrowed for infrastructure. And uh, China has definitely been a major source of funding for infrastructure development. I'm really glad you made the distinction between Chinese investment, actually bringing the money over and sort of, you know, engaging in foreign direct investment. And I think Sri Lankans, uh, Sri Lanka's government taking loans from Chinese uh, institutions, because I feel like a lot of the time we sort of clump the two together, at least in policy discourse in America. And even in some of the interviews I've had in the in the past, but uh, is there a larger? I guess uh, I don't know how you can measure this, but are there more of these loans being taken from Chinese institutions by the Sri Lankan government than the Chinese entities are actually investing in Sri Lanka? Which one's more significant when you compare the two that you uh, differentiated? Unfortunately, the dominate uh, the. It, the loans dominate the story, sadly. This is something I always say when I go for regional forums where we have the Southeast Asians. They complain frequently about Chinese investments and I, ha- I have only to talk about uh, loans from China. And, and I would say that it is uh, Sri Lanka has been struggling to get foreign investments. If you look at the East Asian countries, it's not just China that is investing in East Asian countries. I mean, especially countries like Vietnam, everyone wants to invest in these countries. They get large amount of FDI. Sri Sri Lanka has struggled to get foreign investments in general because our uh, business environment and investment framework is not very investor friendly. Something Another issue that I told you Sri Lankan government has uh, neglected addressing and for a long time, Sri Lanka thought, oh, we are struggling to get just $1 billion worth of FDI because of the war. But even post-2009, Sri Lanka has struggled to uh, get foreign investment. And that showed wild security concerns and uncertainty that comes with the country in conflict, uh, maybe makes Sri Lanka an attractive uh, place for foreign investors. It was very clear that um, even during peace, Sri Lanka could not get uh, FBI largely because there were a lot of uh, issues with uh, our business environment and investment uh, environment that uh, that required attention. But unfortunately, to this date, I don't think they're addressing that. So, I mean, one of the biggest uh, accusations that many in America and many sort of in more Western governments have suggested, and even some in Sri Lanka's political opposition at home have sort of claimed about Sri Lanka's relationship with China, is that Sri Lanka is in a debt trap. And some of China's, uh, I guess, the engagement with regards to these loans has been quote-unquote predatory and has been an example of debt trap diplomacy. Uh, is there any veracity in these claims? Is there any element of truth? Or is this sort of just uh, like an over sort of, it's just like just hyped up to such a different degree? So it, it I mean, one of the things that I frequently ask people who ask me this question, is Sri Lanka in a debt trap, is to ask, uh, is, is that it's important to define it, right? I will tell you the way I understand a debt trap is that, you have borrowed from um, uh, someone and now you are unable to pay that debt and which makes you, forces you to uh, sell your assets. Because this story of debt trap emerged a lot with the uh, Sri Lankan government giving the Hambantha report on 99 lease uh, to, a China, to, the, to a Chinese state-owned enterprise, China Merchant Port Holdings, right? So I think the debt trap diplomacy, uh, Sri Lanka was seen as a, as a poster child of data diplomacy because uh, Sri Lanka was forced to sell this uh, port because Sri Lanka could not service the loans uh, Sri Lanka has taken from China. If that is the definition of the trap, I think uh, not research by Verite, research by other local think tanks like uh, Institute of Policy Studies, as well as some international researchers have proved that it is wrong and inaccurate interpretation of what happened in Sri Lanka. I'll, I'll tell you why it is inaccurate. 
Uh, one of the things that uh, we need to understand is uh, the loan Sri Lankan government took Hambantota port definitely is ha- was uh, was uh, n- didn't have a problem pay- paying back that loan, and this was not a typical debt equity swap where you actually you know uh, get uh, get the debt off your books uh, in exchange for this equity because uh, the the Sri Lanka even after giving the uh, port to on a 99 year lease the the debt was uh, the loan was still in Sri Lanka's books right so Sri Lanka was still to pay the loan it's just that uh, the chinese company gave money to sri lankan government it was not where you you basically scrapped the loan from the books and said oh have the port it wasn't like that actually sri lankan government wanted money to pay other uh, loans or to pay other people that they, uh, they owed not the chinese government so that is one reason why, uh, why I, uh, our research shows that it is not true. The second reason is um, China, China has definitely become an important source of funding. And as a result, if you look at the debt uh, Sri Lanka owes to China has increased over the years. So if you look at only the central government debt uh, uh, that uh, Sri Lanka owes to China, it has increased. It was around 2% uh, at the time uh, before in 2008, just before the war ended. And it increased around 9% by 2018. Uh, and, and if you add the debt, uh, Sri Lankan state-owned enterprises also or to, uh, to uh, China, it increases from about 3 billion US dollars to about 5 billion US dollars. That is outstanding debt. And uh, however, what a lot of people don't realize is that was not the explosive part of Sri Lanka's debt. Sri Lankan government uh, went to the international financial markets and borrowed heavily by issuing international sovereign bonds. And these international sovereign bonds, the, 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 the share of international sovereign bonds in Sri Lanka's outstanding debt increased at the same time from 2008 to 2018 uh, from 4% to 31%. So when China's debt increased from 2 to 9%, ISBs, international sovereign bonds, increased from 4% to 31%. And if you compare the China de- Chinese debt and the state-owned enterprises, our calculations of the uh, uh, of uh, the borrowings between 2005 and 2019 shows that, showed that uh, you know the the effective average interest rate of Chinese loans was around 3.3 percent, whereas international sovereign bonds was around 6.6 percent, double that amount. And the maturity period of Chinese loans was longer; it was around 18 years, whereas international sovereign bonds it was around eight years. So, where why Sri Lanka is in a debt crisis and a debt trap today is it own making and it was not because of China. Uh, these international sovereign bonds have five-year, ten-year maturity periods, a very, uh, very short maturity periods, and these bonds are maturing now and Sri Lanka has to pay them. And when you're at a situation like this, normally if you want to restructure, restructure your debt, it is far more easier for a government to restructure debt by uh, talking to Exim Bank of China or World Bank or ADB. It's, I'm not saying it's easier, but it is a path you have. But in sovereign bonds are brought by a lot of investors, and it is not an e- easy thing for a government to restructure bonds. So that is why the government is in this crisis and, uh, and definitely... The current crisis is not made by China, and if anyone interprets Sri Lanka's debt crisis is uh, made by China because we borrowed from China, that is definitely inaccurate. Thank you for that clear explanation. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I, I think another sort of question I sort of want to ask, just to sort of set the record straight, is uh, we often hear about these white elephant projects, perhaps a new stadium, a new airport, and so on. How prominent are these in the overall picture of either Chinese investments or the taking of loans from China? Yes, I, that, I, I think most of the concern in Sri Lanka is uh, not so much uh, how much did Sri Lanka borrow from abroad, or from China, but it's a lot about how well was that were that was that funds used, right? So, so like you said, uh, the concerns is about how were the projects selected, 
were they the priority projects? And also how um, uh, were the costs that we paid for this, con uh, this construction justifiable? And were there uh, uh, was environment and other social factors properly uh, taken into consideration when executing these projects? So these are the concerns that Sri Lanka has raised. Uh, Sri Lankan people and Sri Lankan researchers and academics uh, have raised about uh, these infrastructure investments and in that context, yes, one of the major um, concerns and a lot of attention has been made, has been received by the Makkal International Airport, the second international airport that was uh, built. About the Hambantota port, uh, unfortunately, the, the narrative in the international domain and the narrative in Sri Lanka is different, I guess. Even Hambantota port, maybe uh, people might, may be uh, saying that it's white elephant. But in Sri Lanka, it's a lot more about whether the timing of the investment and the, and the manner the investment was executed, whether it was too costly, did we pay too high a cost for this construction, right? Otherwise, Hambantota port has for a long time been considered an important strategic port for Sri Lanka. And in the maritime industry, uh, any maritime conference I attended even uh, before China ever invested in Hambantota, there was discussions about Hambantota, how, how strategically located it is and how it could be a second international uh, port, uh, port for Sri Lanka and how Sri Lanka should be developing that. So, and there has been even before China came into the picture, even Sri Lankan governments have uh, commissioned uh, reports uh, to see how feasible and viable uh, this uh, developing this port is. So I think it's important to understand Sri Lankans do consider this import to be important for the country. Uh, but uh, the concerns have been about given that you have a lot of infrastructure that requires uh, to be developed in the country, was this one of the topmost priorities at that point of time and was it done uh, efficiently was the question, are the questions that that is raised. So with regards to some of these, uh, like the Chinese investments and so on, what does the labor market sort of look like with regards to these investments? Like who are sort of constructing these? Because like on the ground, and I don't know whether this is, you know, due to xenophobic sentiments or just political sentiments, but some folks are saying that, you know, like uh, that, you know, we're seeing more Chinese foreign workers sort of come into work on these projects. Is that true? Uh, or are Sri Lankans actually working on these projects in terms of the infrastructure and so on? Uh, is the work being outsourced or is it truly being insourced? Yeah, so it's very important to understand if you ask any Sri Lankan construction company, they would want to import labor. I'm not talking about Chinese investors. It's simply because Sri Lankan construction companies struggle to find labor. Sri Lankan, Sri Lankan people don't like to work in construction jobs, and it's very difficult to retain construction laborers because these are these are Sri Lankans like to have stable jobs, right? Where are you stable permanent jobs? And uh, whereas construction work is not a stable job because companies can't have uh, have permanent cadre. So these are jobs where you work in one construction site for a period and then you shift. And then also they want to pay, have gratuity payments like employment, provident fund, pensions, things like that. You don't get when you work in construction sector. So construction sector in Sri Lanka struggles to uh, get uh, labor. And, and one of the complaints that I would hear from Sri Lankan construction companies uh, is saying that they are being discriminated because foreign construction companies, when they come in, when when the government signs these contracts, they have uh, provisions that allow them to bring in labor, whereas for local construction companies, it's far more difficult to bring in labor from abroad. Uh, so I think when it comes to uh, Sri Lanka, labor shortage is especially at a lower end of the of the of the job uh, strata, uh, more unskilled uh, labor. It's very difficult to find. And also, when you the other thing that most construction companies say is even skilled construction workers uh, is difficult to find in Sri Lanka because most Sri Lankan skilled construction workers migrate to Middle East to work 
So you will find because the, the pay there is far better than the than what can be paid by Sri Lankan construction companies in Sri Lanka. So you have a lot of um, middle skill level people uh, going to Middle East uh, to work. And as a result, you have a shortage even not just at a low skill level, but even at a mid skill level. So, so I don't, I think it will be very difficult to uh, have these massive construction projects done if you are exclusively reliant on Sri Lankan labor because we are a small island economy and we do experience labor shortages and one is labor shortage, the other is willingness of Sri Lankan workers to work in construction uh, sites. Absolutely. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, now I sort of want to talk about the other you know, huge superpower, the U.S. What does U.S. engagement economically uh, looked like with regards to Sri Lanka? So United States uh, is an important uh, trading partner for Sri Lanka. It is the single largest uh, export destination of the country that accounts for about 25% of Sri Lanka's exports. But you had, I mean, Sri Lanka in any case have very little FDI, but most of the foreign investments that comes into Sri Lanka has come from Asian countries. I mean, it has been China, India, Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, countries like this that have been investing in Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, there have been countries, European countries like UK and Netherlands that have been investing in Sri Lanka, but you hardly have uh, US, Canada, US or Canadian investments in Sri Lanka. So, so you don't see, uh, it has, the US has not been a major foreign investor in Sri Lanka. And uh, of course, the uh, United States does not, uh, government doesn't give loans for infrastructure development either, like Chinese government does, right? And uh, there has been, of course, there are child grants, the technical assistance that uh, US government does provide. This includes like capacity building, policy reforms, uh, regulatory reforms, assist technical assistance of that nature that come as grants. But grants are, I mean, even if you take all the grants given by all the countries to Sri Lankan government, it accounts for less than 1% of Sri Lanka's uh, government's total revenue. So they, they don't make a major difference. Uh, but then there is this other assistance that comes from US as well, right? The United States would work with civil society. They may assist a small and medium enterprise development, women empowerment, um, again, working through various US agencies and grants on ground. Uh, so that, that's been mostly the US engagement in Sri Lanka. So... Very recently, we saw, I guess, the MCC uh, that was proposed between the U.S. and Sri Lanka, and the Sri Lankan government declined it. And I believe that our former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, visited, and there were some discussions about the, the MCC when Pompeo visited. But uh, wh why did Sri Lanka's government uh, decline the MCC? And like, what exactly in it was disagreeable? I think it's very important to understand uh, uh, Sri Lankan politic, domestic political context when you interpret what's happening in Sri Lanka and how different, uh, how major powers are viewed in, uh, in Sri Lanka. So both these things uh, affected my, the decision uh, the, the opposition to multi-country, uh, sorry, um, Millennium Challenge Corporation Agreement, uh, than the content in the agreement per se. So 2019 was an election year, and during an election year, any uh, party that wants to, uh, the opposition parties, obviously wants to find something uh, to, uh, you know, some faults or something to basically uh, criticize the ruling uh, party, right? So the ruling party, one of the things that they found uh, that they can criticize on, which basically, ex which uh, you making use of the already uh, existing uh, mistrust uh, about uh, engagement with the West and the United States in Sri Lanka among Sri Lankans. Because uh, Sri Lankans have in general, especially the Sinhala media and, uh, and the Sinhala population, uh, for a long time has viewed West, as, West and the United States as imperialistic 
and their interventions driven by their own agendas and their own geopolitical interests. And it is not necessarily in the interests of the country, and we must be very careful when dealing with these uh, West, uh, Western nations in general, and United States in particular. So this is not a new uh, thinking, which Verity Research does media analysis. So we, we, uh, we have been analyzing Sinhala media for a long time to understand the media narratives about various topics. And what our media analysis clearly show is that this weave of the West and the United States has been consistently present in, in the Sinhala community in Sri Lanka, within the Sinhala community in Sri Lanka. And what the uh, opposite, what the uh, what the uh, opposite the opposition party at that time did was basically making use of this opportunity and uh, using it as uh, as a um, as a means of attacking the ruling party as being unpatriotic and selling national assets of the country. So it is far easier because United National Party, in addition to the perception of West and the United States, there was a perception about the United National Party and the Prime Minister and uh, Rani Vikramasinghe also as someone who was very close to uh, the West and the US and is more subservient to, uh, to the West. And using both these existing uh, views, uh, the, the, the party, obviously the political actors found now this gives us an opportunity. You have the United National Party that is uh, whose close alliance with the United States is viewed, uh, viewed negatively by the public. And you have the United States now trying to do this Millennium Challenge Corporation that is looking at especially one very sensitive subject area, land in Sri Lanka. Land is a very politically sensitive subject, especially uh, any, any foreigner having to do anything with land in the country is always with suspicion. And you had this great opportunity to actually target and, and use in your election campaign because their campaign was built on patriotism and nationalism. And that it is time that a country leads a, needs a leader who is patriotic and nationalist. Uh, so so it, it fit well, it, it fitted well within that narrative. And as a result, uh, so there was a lot of uh, false accusations as well leveled again the uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation Agreement. And to me, it was really uh, domestic politics and existing views about uh, different actors that really created the enormous amount of opposition to the agreement uh, than the content of the agreement itself. Very interesting. And I mean, uh, because I, I guess I've heard quite a bit that USAID has been conditions-based and uh, has it been the conditions-based nature of U.S. sort of loans and investments and so on that has not made it as attractive as Chinese aid? Or is it something, is it more sort of due to the domestic political situation then? I would also like to make a distinction about the China's engagement and the U.S. engagement. So Chinese government does not give what one would call aid, right? Chinese government rarely gives grants to countries. The grant component has been a very recent development of China, but it's not just China, generally Asian governments, even Japan, Korea, that actually provide uh, development assistance really rarely provide uh, grants, especially even when they give grants, they don't give grants in the areas that the United States would give. That is where the difference comes. So for example, uh, technical assistance is not a big thing in, in whether it's Korean or Japanese or Chinese uh, engagement. Technical assistance, especially to uh, re uh, reform regulations, laws, uh, um, uh, introduce market reforms, human rights, democracy, political freedoms. Now, those are not areas. I often say it's not just uniquely Chinese. I have not come across even Japanese and Korean governments doing that either. 
So technical assistance, even if uh, they give, it will be very uh, focused on, you know, based, uh, especially when you take Japan, it will be on disaster management, waste management, environment, not in these other areas like democracy or, you know, mark, uh, making, you know, um, market-oriented reforms, human rights, things like that. So I, I think it's very important to understand that the, the areas they working are very, very different and the way they operate is also very different. So United States will have grants to the government as well as to a lot of civil society actors, think tanks, research organizations, academics, and you would rarely see Chinese government uh, uh, working with anyone outside the government, right? You don't have, they don't work with civil society or think tanks or other organizations. They exclusively work with the government. And when the, you know, and they don't deal with the topics that United States uh, uh, generally is interested in. So that is why I think uh, U.S. assistance is technical assistance and they are directed to certain areas that uh, China does not get involved in. And that is why maybe those grants and the areas of focus is viewed as um, United States trying to intervene in domestic affairs because they are trying to tell us now how should we reform our laws, how should we reform our policies, how should we be thinking about our trade liberalization, so how should we be thinking of human rights or democracy, so they're trying to influence domestic affairs, whereas Chinese government will tell, okay, Sri Lankan government wants to build a highway, Chinese government will say, oh, I can give you a concession and loan to build the highway. Even the Japanese government is the same. I want to build the airport. I want to build, ex expand the uh, Bandarnaik International Airport. The JICA will say, oh yeah, maybe uh, this is an area where we can give you a concessional loan to build that infrastructure. So it's very, very different. And there is, they don't get involved in, okay, you know, how in, in, in areas like, you know, domestic policy, domestic regulations, domestic uh, reforms. But maybe that is why the U.S. is viewed as condition-based and interventionist compared to Chinese uh, lending. So uh, one of my last questions now as we begin to round out the hour in the conversation uh, back to sort of the debt question, is Sri Lanka in any real danger of defaulting on debt? And does Sri Lanka actually need to go to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or is there an alternative way out? I think there is the risk of defaulting debt has definitely increased. Uh, so now I think uh, normally what uh, any, any government would want to do is what you call an orderly default versus a disorderly default. Uh, so the danger right now is whether we would go for a disorderly default where we try to just, you know, really pay this loan and that loan and try to make certain adjustments without properly negotiating a good restructuring plans. And Sri Lankan government definitely needs to restructure its debt. And, uh, and the usefulness and build confidence in uh, about the Sri Lankan government as a borrower in the minds of the lending agencies. And that requires a very solid plan and which is very well executed. So where IMF come, becomes useful is not because IMF brings you money, but IMF really uh, supports uh, a country to build that confidence and, and uh, becomes that uh, out, outsider who will be monitoring uh, the, the execution of the, of the plan that the government has developed and even support developing that plan and support also in restructuring debt. There is definitely a value in going to the International Monetary Fund and uh, there is increasing likelihood that Sri Lanka will, uh, will end up going to the IMF. But the, the, the risk is that Sri Lankan government has been delaying and delaying and delaying, thinking that it will be able to you know, work out some kind of arrangement and manage the situation. But uh, we are saying, and it is increasing uh, uh, every day, the risk of a default, uh, disorder default is increasing as a result. Well, on that note, Subhashini, thank you so much for an enlightening hour of this a conversation. It was very wide ranging, but very succinct and accessible to so many of us who may not be as familiar with these issues and just really trying to 
sort of set the record straight and understand this objectively, because I feel like so many of these issues that we talked about is often uh, politicized, you know, whichever side of the aisle you're on. And uh, it's really refreshing to sort of hear these perspectives and these this sort of myth busting as well. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on, especially at the tail end of this particular mini series. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. So, Ryan, I think that was a very interesting episode for a multitude of reads, since I think one thing that really stood out to me was that she blamed the Sri Lankan government, successive Sri Lankan governments, uh, for a lot of the economic woes that Sri Lanka is facing today. She used the word mismanagement. The economy had been consistently mismanaged from government to government. That this isn't necessarily China's doing, right? Like, we've often talked about this idea of debt trap diplomacy, which has been contradicted by three of our guests, actually, uh, Odita Jayasinghe, Ranil Wickremesinghe, the former prime minister, and then Tarika Balasuri, the, basically the de facto foreign minister at this time, deputy foreign minister. Uh, they all contradicted this idea of debt trap diplomacy. Of course, our TNA MP Shanakian said it is debt trap diplomacy, but I mean, this really talks about the Sri Lankan government having the onus for its own economic situations, its own economic mismanagement. That has currently led to Sri Lanka's ongoing economic crisis right now, which I found very valuable coming from her perspective. Ryan, what were your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, the balance from her was was fantastic. Uh, as you mentioned, Andre, we've had some politicians on, and current and former politicians. And so that, of course, comes with its own baggage and biases. Uh, but she's an economist. And so and it's made very clear. And she was able to not only translate some very complicated economic ideas uh, and, and kind of trends and principles for all of us listening, because I'm not an economist. I didn't do very well in economics. Um, but putting that aside, uh, what I really enjoyed was her comparison of how the money flowing into Sri Lanka from the U.S. versus China is different. The U.S., of course, is far more aid-focused, where China is looking to make investments. Now, they have, in recent years, if, if I can remember correctly, she did mention that China is moving towards different models of foreign direct investment. Um, but uh, the, the distinction is important, and it does kind of sort of get to the broader idea of the U.S. versus China model around the world. And, and it's also important to note that she also distinguishes between the two sort of uh, buckets of what we see Sri Lanka's economic involvement with China being. She talks about the loans that the Sri Lankan government has sought from Chinese financial institutions, loans that the Sri Lankan government seeks to fund their own projects. And then, of course, Chinese foreign direct investments, actual Chinese-linked projects. So we often talk about the loans and Sri Lanka's loan crisis. Again, loans that Sri Lanka is seeking out from China from the agency of their own government, and then foreign direct investment. So I really want to put that out there just because we've talked about this sort of generically with the past episodes, but this is a real distinction we had to make here with regards to China's economic ties. Another thing I really wanted to note is her assessment of why the Sri Lankan government rejected the U.S.'s MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation proposed by the United States government, not proposed necessarily. She said that the previous Rajapaksa government that ruled until 2015 actually sought this out. Uh, and this the continual uh, seeking out of this MCC was done by the previous government as well, and now rejected by the current Rajapaksa government. I say Rajapaksa again because the president and the prime minister are brothers, and they're ruled sort of jointly. She did say, I, I did try to ask her, you know, what were the sort of the faults of the MCC? What was wrong with the MCC to make the Sri Lankan government sort of decline this? She actually said this wasn't necessarily the faults of the MCC, but she said it was political grandstanding. It was a political sort of thing that led to the current government declining the MCC, that the current government was motivated by politics because the previous government had really advanced the MCC. The current government had to oppose it basically from her view, sort of for the sake of opposing it. And uh, I mean, you can hear her yourself, but I thought that was just a very interesting take overall. I completely agree. And uh, I think if there's one thing that we shall be kind of paying attention to is how the U.S. responds in kind to these investments, not only in Sri Lanka, 
but around the world. The U.S. is becoming even more focused through Millennium Challenge Corporation agreements and also through the the Development Finance Corporation uh, to kind of counterbalance or counteract Chinese quote unquote debt trap arrangements, which as we've kind of talked to, aren't always or necessarily debt traps, but they can be in certain scenarios, not not necessarily in Sri Lanka. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of become a big skeptic of the idea of debt trap diplomacy, to be honest, over the course of this miniseries, because we've heard from people in the opposition, in the ruling government, the only person who said they're in a debt trap is uh, the Tamil National Alliance politician. And I think he certainly has uh, certain biases that are, you know, coming into play with how he views uh, certain policies. But I mean, I think objectively speaking, I feel like this idea of debt trap diplomacy is inherently flawed. The idea that the U.S. has about debt trap diplomacy is inherently flawed and really detracts from the agency that so many of these countries have. And I'm saying this because Sri Lanka has often been viewed as the exemplar, the the case in point of debt trap diplomacy. So. Yeah, I'm a big skeptic of that idea. I think certainly there are many ways in which the United States can thwart China's influence because China is building influence. But I'm not sure if this idea of debt trap diplomacy is necessarily the right one, just in my own humble opinion. No, I think that's fair enough. And this is exactly why you embarked on this miniseries is to kind of break down some of the the common ideas that are that are had about Chinese investment or even just about Sri Lanka itself and its economy. And so uh, you're not done yet, Andre. You got one more uh, coming yes. out. We do have another episode coming out with the U.S. ambassador to Sri Lanka, Ambassador Elena Teplitz. She was formerly ambassador to Nepal as well. And it'll be a great episode, a very great episode. And that's going to be coming out soon. Well, thank you all for um, listening. We appreciate it. And as always, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And as always, we'll see you next time. <laughs>